Well, we are in Advent, and Zach is with the kids tonight, and so he asked me to teach. He asked me to teach about Hanukkah, of which I knew nothing about. Um, but what I found out very quickly, as Brian just read, Jesus celebrated the Festival of Dedication. Um, if you guys have heard of Josephus, He's a Jewish historian, I think a century or two after uh, Jesus was around. And he kind of coined the phrase Festival of Lights, which um, is where we get Hanukkah. And so the Festival of Dedication and the Festival of Lights, depending on what version of the Bible you have, are the same festival. So Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. That's kind of cool. Um, so I started looking into the history of Hanukkah, and uh, we're going to go over a lot of history tonight. And it takes us all the way back to uh, the Babylonian captivity. If you guys remember when uh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego uh, were taken captive, um, that's the event that we're talking about. And so in the Old Testament... The Israeli people are captured by the Babylonians, and the uh, elites, the Jewish elites of Jerusalem were taken into exile, the rich, the wealthy, the prominent, and it was actually this event that caused the Jewish people to go from a people that were of oral history to written history. Their history up until this point was just passed down from their elders uh, orally, and the separation of their people caused them to have to write down their history, and I thought that was super fascinating. Um, but, so now Babylon has control over um, Israel, and this takes, pla takes place in 586 BC, and if you guys follow the Old Testament, follow your history books, we know that in 539 BC, um, Cyrus, the new leader, um, new ruler, I should say, allows Israel to go back to their land. And that's where Nehemiah kind of kicks in. And they're able to uh, rebuild Jerusalem. They're able to partake in their sacrifices and take um, part in their traditions again. And during this time, Greece is kind of rising in power globally. And uh, this is leading to the big Grecian-Persian War. So if you guys are familiar with the story of uh, the 300 Spartans and all that. So this is all taking place um, in the global theater while this is going on. Uh, Philip II um, starts to gather the Grecian states up to rise up against Persia, who's in power, and he dies, but his son, Alexander III, or we would know him as Alexander the Great, takes his place and continues his father's mission um, and conquers most of the known world uh, all the way to Afghanistan. And at that point, his army kind of says, we're done. You know, this is too far from home. And they mutiny against him. And um, he ends up dying of uh, unknown causes. There's a few different theories. But his generals split up the land, and they fight amongst themselves for the next several decades. And Israel is a part of a huge trade route. And so it actually changes hands between um, the Egyptians and the Seleucids, and it actually lands in the hands of the Seleucids. And these are the people that the Jews would rebel against. 
And while all of this is going on, on the east side of the Mediterranean, um, Rome is starting to rise in power. And uh, Antiochus III um, challenges the Romans, and he loses, and he's forced to pay tribute to the Romans. It gets really expensive really fast. And in 175 BC, his son Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, takes control, leads, and he wants to um, become as powerful as possible. And so he starts taxing the people very heavily so that he can start building up his armies and, um, yeah, just build his forces. And one of the ways to do that, that's the monitor, um, so he's ruling over people that has, uh, it's very diverse. There are many different cultures that uh, he oversees. And so um, along the lines of what Alexander the Great tried to do, um, Alexander the Great took a Persian bride and told his generals to take Persian brides and um, trying to mesh Eastern and Western culture so that you'd create a um, single culture of the ruling class people that would trickle down to the common people. And through that, instead of having diverse cultures that you're trying to oversee and rule over, you have one culture and it's much easier to have um, authority and power and control when all of your people are united like that. And so Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes seeks to do this by force. Um, this process, um, if you read in scripture, you hear of the Hellenists. They were a faction or a sect of Jews. Um, these were the people that were okay with this. These were the Jews that thought assimilating with the Greek and Roman culture would be good for them. Um, actually, in the first book of Maccabees, um, this is uh, recorded. The Jews came together and said, come, let us make a covenant with the Gentiles around us, because ever since we have kept ourselves separated from them, we have suffered many evils. That's Maccabees 1, chapter 1, verse 11. And so these Jews were known as Hellenists, and the Orthodox Jews did not like the Hellenist Jews, and we still see that division leak into the book of Acts as there's rivalry between the um, Jewish leaders and the Hellenists, um, and even into the church, we see that there's still a lot of divide between these groups of people. And so uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, as he's trying to Hellenize uh, the Jewish people, he unseats the current high priest and replace him, replaces him with this guy named Jason. And Jason um, offers uh, Antiochus more taxes if he puts him in power. And so he kind of doesn't bribe him, but just gives him a better offer than the current high priest. And he's pretty friendly to the Hellenization of his people. So the majority of Jerusalem doesn't like their leader. Um, and so through this process, Jason brings in temples to pagan gods. He brings in um, just cultural norms of the Greeks and Romans. Um, they said that the Hellenists were known for wrestling in the nude like their Greek counterparts, and the Jews never wrestled in the nude. And so that was a big uh, topic that they fought about in the city of Jerusalem during this time. But Jason, um, as friendly as he was to Antiochus, here comes another guy who offers Antiochus more money. 
and uh, Malayus. He was an active Hellenist. He replaces Jason. And uh, during this time, the Hasidim, which is like this uh, sect of Jews that was like a resistance force. They were orthodox. They were angry. Uh, they team up with Jason, and they rise up against this new high priest that has more allegiance to um, the Roman government, and they lose. But what this does is it shows the Roman government, it shows Antiochus Epiphanes that the majority of Jerusalem does not uh, want to be Hellenized, that they are against his policies, and so he sends an army to occupy Jerusalem. And if you guys are familiar with the, um, in Scripture, the abomination of desolation, um, his forces come into the city, and they break down the walls of the city, and so they make the city physically weak. Um, It's no longer a place for people to gather and to barricade themselves. Um, Now it's just open to Um, attack, and it's very easy to control with an army. And not only does he physically weaken the city, but um, in the book of Maccabees, and actually Josephus as well, record that Antiochus Epiphanes decreed that the Jews follow the foreign customs, that they stop their holy offerings, that they violate Uh, the Sabbath law and the festivals, that they defile the temple and holy items, that the Jews themselves were made to sacrifice swine on the altars and spread the blood of those pigs on the temple. Um, They were to build new altars and shrines to idols. They were not to circumcise their sons. They were to cease their cleansing rituals, and they were to cease studying the Torah. And all this was by penalty of death. And so Antiochus Epiphanes just comes in and commits cultural genocide to the people of Israel. And Israel is upset, but there's nothing that they can do because this is all by penalty of death, except a man named Mattathias and his five sons, uh, the most prominent of his sons named Judah Maccabee, Uh, Maccabee is just the Jewish word for the hammer. That was his nickname. So you know he was a gentle, quiet guy with a nickname like the hammer. Um, But there's recorded at this event, um, Mattathias was a priest, and he was ordered by the Roman government to sacrifice to a pagan god and who refused and uh, a Jew that was just trying to be a nice guy offered to make the sacrifice in his stead. And at that moment, uh, Mattathias and his sons drew swords and killed the traitor, the Jew that offered to make the sacrifice, killed the Roman official that ordered the sacrifice and declared war against um, Antiochus and his regime. And this leads into uh, seven years of guerrilla warfare for the Jews. Um, I'm not going to get into the battles, but they're super uh, bloody, lots of loss of life. Um, And it's just a tragic time for the nation. Uh, In 165 BC, Mattathias dies and his son Judah, Judah Maccabees, Uh, rises to take the lead, and um, by 164 BC, Jerusalem is actually under control of the Maccabees. 
uh, Jonathan, his brother, Judah Maccabee's brother, is raised up to be uh, the new high priest. And so now that they have a high priest in order, um, they're ready to start living like they used to. Um, During this time, there's other conflicts around the world. And so uh, the Roman army is kind of pulled back and they actually gain uh, autonomy and religious freedom. Those are granted to them and they're able to start over. And so uh, Jesus is celebrating the festival of dedication. And what that festival is celebrating is the rededication, the cleansing of the temple. And um, this is where the rebuilding of the nation, what the Jewish people are actually celebrating about Hanukkah. During this time, they're cleansing the temple and they're, um, you know, doing all of their cleansing rituals inside and out of the temple. And uh, one of the things that's supposed to be happening is that there's a candlestick, a lampstand in the temple that's continually supposed to be burning. And when Antiochus came in, that lampstand was put out and it hasn't been lit um, this whole time they're fighting this war for seven years. And uh, so... They go to light this. They're ready to rededicate the temple, um, but they only have enough oil for one day of burning. And um, they can make new oil, but it will take at least eight days for them to make new um, holy oil for their lamp. But in faith, they lit that lamp, even though it only had, you know, in my mind, what's the big deal? Why not wait seven days, then have your rededication of the temple? Why is it um, so important to them to light this candle when they don't have enough oil? Um, I'm not Jewish. I don't have the history or the heritage or the understanding or even the perspective to see where these guys are um, coming from, what their thought process is. But as I was thinking about it today, um, they operate with a faith that I rarely see in my own life. Uh, The oil that was supposed to last one day lasts eight days. And the Jewish people, from that point to the point of Jesus to today, celebrate that event that God provided enough oil miraculously to last that eight days. And so today, we see them celebrate with the menorah, and they light it for eight days. Um, We see Jesus was celebrating this festival. And I can imagine, as we get together, and we get together for Christmas, and we say, Jesus is the reason for the season, and we all have nativities in our home, and it becomes... Uh, just a reminder of who Jesus is and what he's done and the life that he lived. And for the Jewish people, Hanukkah being this kind of uh, beacon, this remembrance of God's provision, you know, even when they don't have enough resources, even when, um, you know, looking back past the oil to the deliverance that he brought them through against the Romans and the Greeks 
and just the oppression and being marginalized um, what seemed to be the whole world, you know, they look back at Hanukkah and see that this is a time that God was faithful um, miraculously. It can start to be um, inspiring. And so when you see the Jews encounter Jesus at this festival, as Brian read, find the verse, And the festival of dedication took place in Jerusalem. And it was winter. Jesus was walking in the temple in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Um, You know, the Jews historically have been through the ringer. And whenever they point back to a season of deliverance, through God's deliverance, it's usually through some heroic figure when you think of Moses or you think of Samson or you think of just these people throughout um, Jewish history that we can point to. But all of those people, David especially, point forward to the Messiah. And we know that the Jewish people are waiting for the Messiah. And so when they're reminded of the deliverance that God has given them from the Romans before through the Maccabees. And they turn to Jesus and they say, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're waiting for? You can start to get excited about that. And, you know, Jesus' message to the people seems to inspire hope. We know that you know, ultimately the, the Jewish people decide that he is not the Messiah and they have him crucified. But for us, looking back on this day, looking back on this event, we see that Jesus, we know Jesus is the Messiah, but particularly for these Jews to encounter him and question him, even though Hanukkah inspired uh, hope. It sparked a hopefulness. It didn't necessarily spark belief. And for me, I can really relate to that as I read through Scripture, as I look back on my own life and see the faithfulness of God. It can inspire. It can spark hope. It can get me excited. It can get me um, in a good place mentally, but it doesn't necessarily inspire belief in my heart. And so when I think about these people that Jesus talked to, you know, he says, I've told you who I am. I told you I'm the Messiah, but you don't believe me. I have to look back at my own life, and I know what Scripture says. I know what Jesus has told me. I know that he's been faithful in the past. I see in Scripture that he can be faithful in miraculous ways, but where does my hope lie? Where does my belief lie? Who's the hero in my story? And I think that um, as Christmas is a season of reflection for me, for a lot of Christians in America, we've kind of glanced over Hanukkah because we're not Jewish. You know, we're Gentiles, most of us. Um, Hanukkah isn't widely celebrated in our nation, but it is something that God did for his people 
And even though it's not in Scripture, we can look back on this event and use it to remind us to reflect on our own hearts. Just as Jesus and the Jews look back to what God had done and celebrate the Festival of Lights, the Festival of Dedication, we can look back um, at the birth of Christ and see what he has done. We can see that his birth started um, a perfect life that was lived by faith, that set a captive world free from a world that was oppressed. Sinners who are controlled by sin, it set them free. And Jesus um, grew up to be the true Maccabee. He crushed the head of the serpent. And in this season, as we know all of those things, do we get distracted by the baking and the busyness and the gifts and the gatherings? Do we miss the meaning of Christmas? Do I miss the meaning of Christmas? Do I miss, just as these Jews missed, the reality that Jesus lays out for us? You know, I think that um, for me, deciding to do something, deciding to commit to something, deciding to celebrate something um, needs to become more of a uh, physical, practical response in my life. Because it's easy to gather for Christmas and sing songs about Christmas and to gather with friends. You know, we have dinner together. We have uh, prayer walks together. Um, I think that for me, being reminded that these events are history, that God's provision is very real and tangible. And a lot of times I don't feel like it is. A lot of times I don't feel like I'm in the place where I can be excited about Jesus is the reason for the season. Jesus is, um, you know, the hero of this story. And it feels like I'm waiting for eight days worth of oil. It feels like I'm not excited about it. I'm just waiting to get excited about it. And when I am excited about it, whenever that comes, that's when I'll partake in the celebration. But the Jews, they lit that lamp out of faith. You know, they said, this is, you know, the temple's ready to be dedicated. There's nothing stopping us. Let's light it and we'll go make the oil. And God stretched that oil those eight days. So for me, I don't have to wait for those feelings, those emotions to arrive. I don't have to wait for that eight-day supply, but to come to God where I'm at, as I am, in this season, as it's busy, as there's things to check off my to-do list, as there's things to distract me. I think that deciding you know, maybe you guys are in a totally different place than me. Maybe you're in the exact same place. But deciding to celebrate who Jesus is, um, not just for the season, but, you know, make this a daily decision 
is to return to the mentality that he is the Messiah. Just as the Jewish people were so accustomed to looking forward to the Messiah, how accustomed am I to looking back to the Jesus did, what Jesus did on the cross, to the life that he lived? You know, is, is he the hero of my story? Or am I waiting for certain circumstances? Am I waiting for uh, my life to reach a certain place? I think that you know, I need to return to realizing that my Savior needs to be the focal point of my life, not what he wants me to do, not the book of the Bible that I'm studying, what lessons, lessons is he teaching me right now, but him as a person, as a hero. You know, return to the idea that miracles are a reality. I think we live in a day and age that, um, you know, coincidence and computations are a really big thing. Like we look at uh, miraculous things or things that are just, have really, 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 uh, high improbability, and we're like, man, what are the chances of that? Oh man, that's a coincidence that that happened. And I forget that we don't live by sight, but Christ calls us to live by faith. And I can look back in my life and see that there are miracles that He's done in my life, around my life, and I've witnessed them. But do they put me in a place? Do they remind me? to keep that perspective. You know, when I pray that God would heal somebody, do I expectantly pray that he will? You know, when um, I have friends or family who are struggling to make ends meet, do I look for ways that I can be a part of God taking care of them? You know, I think that we've, that I've just become so mechanical in my thinking. And I operate in the world like everybody else does. You know, this is Satan's domain, and there are rules and systems set up. And it's super easy for us just to plug and play and walk through this life and think this is how it's supposed to be. And a lot of those systems, uh, are false holiness. You know, when we come into the Christmas season and we become super generous and we give away a lot of stuff or we um, make dinners for people and um, we can go through all of those motions because that's just what the culture does during this time of year. But if Jesus is the focal point if we're living with a perspective that the miraculous is a reality, how different would our actions be? Would we still look like the rest of the world? Would we still be searching for our Messiah? Would we still be questioning what he looks like, who, um, how he's going to turn up in our life? Or would we be would we be acting in an active faith? Would our, you know, when we think of people that have uh, strong faith, 
there's a few people in my life that I think of as spiritual giants, and they operate so differently than I normally do. And this season, whether we're celebrating Christmas or looking back on Hanukkah, I mean, the reality is the light of the world was born into a world of darkness. And for us who have had the scales of our eyes removed, how different should our lives be? How much room should we be making for miracles in our lives? How much uh, room should we make in our lives for Jesus to be miraculous through us? And, you know, the study of Hanukkah, which is just, I'll I'll admit, there was a point this week where I thought it was dumb. I was like, we aren't Jewish. We shouldn't worry about this. Okay, Jesus celebrated it. I guess we should look into it. But the truth is, there are probably so many untold stories that we should be celebrating, you know, little-known stories to us, Gentiles, that we should be celebrating of Jesus' faithfulness, of God's provision, of his miraculous interference with the lives of his creation. And it really convicted me. It really revealed where my heart was, what my perspective was, And uh, I think it, hopefully, as I leave from tonight and continue to pray about these things, uh, puts me on a trajectory that's very different than where I've been heading, what I've been doing. You know, as we all have different jobs, different places, different roles to play, um, You know, my prayer tonight is that God would miraculously interfere with each one of our roles. That we wouldn't be so um, mechanical or stuck or rigid in those things, but that he would um, just reveal himself, reveal who he is, reveal um, his provision. I think for us that... uh, don't really know the Jewish festivals, know the holidays that they celebrated. Um, You know, it's super beneficial for us to look into those things. Uh, Not that you have to go pick up the Apocrypha and read that. Not that you have to go and um, wear tassels around your pants like some of my friends do. Um, God bless them. Um, But to really have our perspective broadened, to have our eyes open to the miraculous provision that God seems to pour out on his people, whether they be the Jews or the church. I think that celebrating the miracle of Hanukkah is something that we should be doing on a daily basis. Maybe we don't have a menorah in our window. Maybe we don't fry the little potato pancakes. 
but just being reminded of the the heart that God has for his people, the faithfulness that he shows them, and that we would live in that reality, that we would not be um, held back, but that we would be excited, that we'd be um, expectant in those things. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.